Hello and welcome to the October 2022 edition of Aon's Retirement Market Update Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and I normally try to find something vaguely amusing to say in this intro, but there's a ton of actual pension stuff to talk about this month, so this will just have to do. Today, we'll be looking at the fallout from the new Chancellor's mini-budget, but first we need to get through some news updates just to explain how we ended up here in the first place. On the 8th of September, we all heard the sad news that Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II had passed away at the age of 96. This was followed by a period of national mourning, which meant a lot of activities were paused and events postponed. One of the events affected by this was the topic of last month's podcast, Pensions Awareness Week. Some events organised by individual schemes and companies did go ahead, but the main series of live online sessions planned by the organisers has now been rescheduled for the period from the 31st of October to the 4th of November. The wider pension attention campaign did manage to get kicked off, and the unexpected brand ambassador I mentioned last month turned out to be none other than rapper and TV chef Big Zoo. He's recorded a special music video to support the campaign, which should attract the attention of a younger and more diverse audience than most pension communications. I'm not sure any of them are about to seek out a podcast on the topic, but hey, you've got to start somewhere. One of the Queen's last official duties was to invite the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, to form a government. Ms Truss beat Rishi Sunak in the Conservative Party's leadership election, although the margin of 57% to 43% was smaller than some may have expected. The change in PM was followed by a host of changes in the Cabinet, including Kwasi Kwarteng replacing Nadim Zahawi as Chancellor. Not the last time you'll be hearing Mr Kwarteng's name today. Therese Coffey, who had been Work and Pensions Secretary for the last three years, has taken on new roles as both Health Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister. Ms Coffey is replaced at the DWP by Chloe Smith, who joins the Cabinet for the first time and in a frankly horrifying development is younger than me. I guess it happens to us all eventually. After the initial Cabinet appointments, things went quiet for a while due to the period of mourning. But once that was over, we got an update from Guy Opperman, who had been Minister for Pensions and Financial Inclusion for the last five years, well, except for that one day in July when most of the government resigned. Mr Opperman confirmed that he'd been relieved of his duties on the day the Queen died, bringing an end to the longest-running tenure of any pensions minister since the post was first created in 1998. At the time of recording, I think I'm right in saying there's a bit of uncertainty around the future of the pensions minister role. Some reports have suggested that Alex Berghart has been appointed, and while he's certainly been given a new role at the DWP, the specific details of that role don't seem to have been officially confirmed yet. Hopefully we'll get some more certainty on this soon. Fresh to his new role as Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng set out the government's growth plan in a mini-budget at the rather novel time of 9.30am on Friday the 23rd of September. The only announcement directly related to pensions policy was that draft regulations to remove well-designed performance fees from the DC charge cap would be brought forward. The government had consulted on this change last November and said in its response earlier this year that it would take time to understand the concerns raised and issue a further consultation alongside draft regulations and guidance. There were also wider taxation changes that could have an indirect impact on pensions. Firstly, the planned increase in the main rate of corporation tax has been scrapped. This was due to go up from 19 to 25% in April 2023, but it will now remain at 19%. Employers who were planning to delay paying contributions into their pension schemes until after April 2023 in order to benefit from a higher rate of tax relief may now wish to review those plans. 
Secondly, the national insurance increase that applied from April 2022 will be reversed from November, with the corresponding social care levy that was due to come in from April next year also being cancelled. This could have an impact for schemes that allow employees to receive lower pension contributions in exchange for a cash payment, as those payments are often reduced to offset the additional employer NI contributions. There were also reductions in stamp duty and income tax. A reduction in the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 19% was already planned for April 2024, but this is now being brought forward by a year. There will be a one-year transitional period for schemes that use the relief at source method so they can continue claiming tax relief at 20%. Perhaps the most surprising announcement was the abolition of the 45% top rate of tax for income over £150,000, also from next April. This, coupled with the removal of limits on bankers' bonuses, made it pretty clear that the new PM and Chancellor are willing to take actions that may be unpopular with most voters in the belief that these will stimulate economic growth. In comments over the weekend following his mini-budget, Mr Kwarteng said he had plans for further tax cuts, with press speculation suggesting these could include changes to pensions tax allowances, as well as the tapering of the personal allowance for those with income over £100,000. The next full budget has been delayed until the spring, but the Chancellor is due to set out details of his medium-term fiscal plan on the 23rd of November. This will be published alongside growth and borrowing forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility, which have been conspicuously absent so far. We'll leave the news there for now, but I'll come back with some more normal news stories after this next part. So, having given you the background on the mini-budget, I wanted to take a look at the market reaction and how that's impacted pension schemes. I'm going to do something slightly different today and use some clips from our Investment Market Outlook webinar which ran on the 29th of September. You'll be hearing from Tapan Data from Aon's Global Asset Allocation team, Tim Locke, who's our Head of LDI Client Solutions, and Maria Johansson, a senior partner in our investment practice. To start things off, I think it's fair to say that the market reaction to the mini-budget was not positive. The combination of large unfunded tax reductions for high earners and the lack of any growth or borrowing forecasts led to an increase in gilt yields and a fall in the value of sterling. What did Tapan make of it? There were some warning flags in the lead up to last week's budget. You know, both gilt and currency markets had been very uneasy because the, <clears throat> the prospect of a large unfunded fiscal splurge had been kind of leaked to the markets. But here is the rub. You know, nobody expected that the actual budget statement would deliver an even bigger fiscal splurge than had been earlier kind of pre-announced in effect, because essentially we got a 72 billion pound increase in borrowing in just the remaining six months of the financial year. Uh, that's massive, right? Um, and here's the thing, I mean, at a time when, you know, essentially bond markets have become less willing to finance large deficits, global yields have been rising for the best part of a year, Inflation in the UK is a multiple of the Bank of England target, where the pound was pretty much already on the ropes prior to the budget announcement. So what have you thought of the growth-promoting credentials of the budget? The announcement just seemed to have been singularly ill-timed. The Chancellor's comments over the following weekend just exacerbated the situation, with sterling coming quite close to parity with the US dollar at one point. A stinging rebuke from the IMF didn't help matters, and over the next few days we saw further very large increases in gilt yields. The gradual falls in yields that we'd seen over the last decade have effectively been reversed over a period of about nine months, with much of that coming in the last two weeks. Even Tapan was shocked. 
No, I haven't got much hair left, but, but I scratch my head and I think, my goodness, what what have we just seen? I mean, if anybody asked me a week ago whether these sorts of moves in guilt markets were possible or impossible, I would have said closer to impossible. But that's what we've seen, right? These yield rises had a particularly noticeable impact on DB schemes with LDI strategies in place. I discussed this with Colin Cartwright back in July, but this was a much more extreme version of what we were talking about then. Here's Tim's summary. Okay, well, let, let, let's start at the start. You know, um, in leveraged LDI funds, investors effectively borrow money to, to go and invest in, in gilts. Now, as, as we're saying, gilt yields have risen steadily all the way over, you know, this year. Um, and that's another way of saying that gilts have, gilt prices have fallen. And so if you're an investor in a leveraged LDI fund, that means the value of, of, of the assets in those funds, you know, that's reduced even more significantly. If those moves are large enough, these funds can be forced to deleverage. That means that the investor has a choice. Either they put more money into the fund, or alternatively, the fund reduces exposure by selling gilts. LDI funds have headroom. They, they, they don't operate at a bare minimum le level of leverage all the time. They, they try to keep leverage well above that minimum amount. And if gilts fall in value, that provides some time for, for monies to be obtained from, from asset sales elsewhere in the portfolio, alternatively for the LDI manager to, to go and reduce the size of the exposure through a sale of gilt. If we look at the last 20 years when LDI funds have been around, yield rises have been a relatively isolated event and, and have typically happened quite gradually. The last few days have really been different there. You know, we've seen large yield rises day in, day out, and, and cumulatively these, these were well over 1%. We had a vicious cycle of, of, of yield rises which which developed and, you know, that that has 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 caused issues. However, around midday yesterday, the Bank of England stepped in. Since then, yields have fallen back a long way, you know, to to, to levels that we saw on Friday. So, how did the bank's intervention work? So, you know, the Bank of England has come in to to help at least provide a temporary solution to this problem. Uh, in 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 the short term, they they've stepped in and they've put out an announcement that and and, and indeed started to act as a, a buyer of gilts in the market. Um, now, you know, why have they done this? Well, you know, the Bank of England has, you know, more than one job. They have mandates to both ensure financial stability, but but also monetary stability, um, which is what we're normally familiar with, with what the Bank of England is doing as, as targeting low and stable inflation. I think earlier this week, it's quite clear that the gilt market was not orderly. You know, gilts couldn't be easily sold. And, and this is a fundamental part of the financial infrastructure, you know, the country. So, because of that, the Bank of England acted to address that yesterday. Again, in the short term, what's happened is the Bank of England has stepped in to act as a purchaser of gilts on the open market. And it's doing that until for a period until around the 14th of October, so a little, under, a little over two weeks. This focuses on the long-dated gilts, which are those ones which have over 20 years residual maturity, and, and those are the ones that LDI funds mostly hold. Why does this work? This works because it provides liquidity and it helps to break that vicious cycle that we've just described. So we've heard about the stress this has placed on DB schemes with LDI, but the impact will have varied quite a bit from scheme to scheme. Here are some comments from Maria on this. Well, the story is the same for all pension funds when we look at scheme liabilities. Currently, the valuations or the net present value will have fallen significantly for all pension scheme. The key question is really what has the liquidity crisis done to the asset side of that balance sheet? And I think sort of that pension schemes are probably in in four buckets. I've got four buckets today. I might have more buckets tomorrow. Um, but we have schemes that uh, have 
had their hedging, their interest rate and inflation hedging exposure reduced. We've schemes that have uh, run out of liquid assets. So hedging, okay, but uh, liquid assets, they are no more. And then there are probably schemes that are okay with regards to LDI exposure and liquid assets, but they need to rebalance. Um, and then there are schemes that are just okay. So the same on the liability side and very different on the asset side of the balance sheet of pension funds. And what should DB schemes be thinking about now? What all clients and us working with our clients, well, all pension schemes in the UK, of course, really need to understand is where is their LDI exposure? What is the situation on the asset side of the balance sheet with regards to liquidity? So are there assets there that uh, can be sold without taking a haircut on the valuation in, in short order to support LDI exposure if that is required? And then I think all pension schemes need to think about rebalancing because um, it it does, I mean, the mechanisms between the liability side of the balance sheet and the asset side of the balance sheet, uh, if a scheme has been well hedged, so high hedging level, we would have seen sort of similar fall in assets and liabilities. The question is whether on the asset side, that was a leveraged exposure. If it was a leveraged exposure, one can sort of broadly assume that the scheme will have had to sell uh, liquid assets to support um, the the sort of the really steep falls in valuations of gilts and index and gilts that Tappan and Tim referred to. And here's more from Maria and Tim on actions for DB schemes. Understand where is the pension scheme today? Is the LDI hedging still intact? Can it still be supported? Because don't forget that we have uh, sort of Bank of England said they are intervening until the 14th of October. Uh, of course, we could see the volatility come back. So a key consideration is liquidity of the portfolio, LDI hedging, is it intact? That's today fact-finding, sort of batten down the hatches, we're in the eye of the storm. And in very swift sequence, then really uh, look at rebalancing the asset side of the balance sheet, free up cash to support the hedge or consider whether the LDI hedging level should be reduced such that it requires less collateral in the future. Clearly, you know, talk to talk to your LDI manager, talk to your, your consultant to find out what the position has been. They're, they're going to be really busy at the moment, to put it mildly, but that that is the first step and that's going to really help. In the meantime, you need to think what is the strategy that you want to take forward. Um, you know, my my starting point is that you know most schemes have a a strategy in place and the default assumption should be you know why not continue with that one in the first instance what we certainly also need to do though is think about the robustness and the resilience of those strategies in light of what's happened so i i would personally be very concerned now or you know much more interested in what level of support from liquid assets we have what level of governance we have in terms of being able to access those assets and and ensure that we have a you know suitable waterfall in place to, to to make sure that those can be accessed in in short order. Now I think most of those were in place before, but I think we just need to reflect the reality of, of what's just happened in terms of the the magnitude of of, of events and, and and the scale of those um, those processes that need to be put in place to, to to ensure that this is far less likely in the future. Once we sort of uh, are sailing on calmer seas again, uh, be really interesting to see where the sort of median guilt level settles down at. Uh, that will then tell us a lot about how can hedging be supported going forward. But after that, I think it is really about risk management. It is really about having a plan 
pension schemes need a sort of a, a pensions continuity plan to know such that they are clear on what action should they take when the next sort of unknown unknown event happens basically that sounds you know counterintuitive of bizarre of me to say that but obviously being organized as tim said around having a a, a waterfall for for liquidity um having a plan for communication as well um is these things are just really important that covers off the db investment angle but there are a few other points to touch on firstly the other ways that rising yields affect db schemes this isn't going to be an exhaustive list and i'll cover this bit myself as it is kind of my job when i'm not sat in front of a microphone yields going up causes cash equivalent transfer values to reduce there may be a bit of a lag in this happening, but most schemes will be updating the yields they use for CETVs on a monthly basis, so we could see CETVs coming through materially lower in October than they were in September. This could lead to queries or complaints from members, particularly if you have members who have requested a quote before and can make a direct comparison. Another thing to watch out for here is guarantee periods. There's a statutory window of three months from the calculation date for a member to decide if they want to accept a CETV quote. In a world of rising yields, this can mean that by the time the CETV is paid, the amount looks quite generous relative to current market conditions. Some schemes offer a longer guarantee period to give members more time to make decisions, but those schemes may wish to review this policy in order to limit their exposure to adverse yield movements. Commutation factors could also be affected here. These factors aren't normally directly linked to market conditions, instead remaining fixed between each factor of you. Many schemes have had their actuaries telling them for years that their commutation factors are too low, but there are lots of reasons why these factors may not have been increased in line with falling yields over the last decade, including the possibility that yields will rise again. Now this has finally happened, it may ease some of the upward pressure on commutation factors. Having said that, there may be some schemes where the commutation factors actually have kept pace with falling yields, and these schemes may find that their factors now look too generous and need to be reduced. Given the significance of the change in yields over the last few months, we suggest that all schemes who aren't already close to their next full factor review should consider carrying out a mini-review in the near future. The final point I wanted to cover on DB schemes is duration, which is often used as a measure of scheme maturity. In particular, we're expecting this to be used under next year's new funding regulations to assess the point at which a scheme becomes significantly mature. That, in turn, will drive the timescale for reaching a long-term, low-dependency target. You might think that duration is just based on the profile of your membership or the profile of your projected cash flows, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that, and it can be surprisingly sensitive to yield changes. Generally speaking, higher yields will lead to shorter durations, so that could mean a lot of schemes are finding the timescales to achieve their low dependency target are now closer than they previously thought. The other thing we haven't really talked about yet is DC schemes, so I just wanted to finish this section up with some final comments from Maria. DC funds um, obviously uh, invested in different ways. Fundamentally, if guilt or index linked guilt is part of the the sort of later stage um, strategy, then uh, this uh, you know is looking difficult. But as you pointed out as well, um, annuity values are improving as well. I think um, I it's really hard to generalize. Actually, I do had a client a couple of years ago where we were worried about guilt moving up, sort of in. In, in a time horizon much quicker than a DC member would respond to. And we changed their landing portfolio to be much more cash and uh, cash and credit based, um, of course. So I think it's just difficult to generalize on that side.
Right, should we talk about something a bit less stressful now? Um, how about RPI reform? Back in May last year, I told you that the trustees of three large private sector DB schemes were seeking a judicial review of the decision to align RPI with CPIH from 2030. Well, the High Court's now dismissed this judicial review, ruling against the pension schemes on each of their three main challenges and using some surprisingly forceful language in the process. The three schemes were said to be considering an appeal, but a few weeks later it was confirmed that permission to appeal the judgment was refused by the High Court and the schemes have decided not to pursue an application to the Court of Appeal. This gives the government the green light to proceed with the reforms and effectively confirms that no compensation will be paid to index-linked guilt holders who lose out as the result of the changes. And finally, you didn't really think I'd get to the end of a podcast without mentioning the pensions regulator, did you? TPR's chief exec, Charles Council, spoke at the SPP conference this month and he gave some progress updates on codes of practice. He said the second part of the consultation on the new DB funding code would be published later this calendar year. As it stands, the new code is still a work in progress and TPR are waiting for final regulations from the DWP before they move this on to the next stage. I talked about those new regs last month. They're still out for consultation, but that does close on the 17th of October. Mr. Council also said there will be further movement on the single code of practice soon, although we understand that changes in Parliament over the summer mean this has been delayed and it may not be ready until early next year. Okay, that's more than enough of me talking for one day, so thanks for listening. Thanks to Tapan, Tim and Maria for their really helpful insights. And thanks also to Callum McKenzie for doing a great job chairing the webinar that I shamelessly borrowed all those clips from. I'm off to lie down in a darkened room for a couple of weeks until everything's gone back to normal, whatever that means these days, but I'll be back with more next month. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.